0: you
1: Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest the presence of Jesus Christ among us. Shalom. Shalom. Are you starting to see a theme here?
0: (laughs) At first we weren't sure about the tense, but we're getting it now, Lord. We're sure the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is with us too, just as he was with his chosen people, the Israelites. And that cloud that traveled with them was the presence of God. And it remains with us to this day, because today the tabernacle, the covenant, contains our precious Lord. Well, there was a Jewish businessman in Chicago who sent his son to Israel, too, for a year to absorb the culture. And when the son returned, he said, Papa, I had a great time in Israel. By the way, I converted to Christianity. (laughs) Oy vey, said the father. What have I done? He took his problem to his best friend. Ike, he said, I sent my son to Israel. He came home a Christian. What can I do? Funny you should ask, said Ike. I too sent my son to Israel. He also came home a Christian. Perhaps we should go see the rabbi. They took their problem to the rabbi. Funny you should ask, said the rabbi. I too sent my son to Israel. He also came home a Christian. What is happening to our young people? So they prayed, they told God about their sons, and they asked him what they should do. And as they finished their prayer, a voice came out of heaven that said, funny you should ask. (laughs) I too sent my son to Israel. (laughs) Well, our speaker this morning has traveled a journey, a journey from Jewish roots to evangelical wings to the heart and soul of Catholicism. She has a master's degree in ministry and she works as the staff apologist for Catholic Answers. She travels the world speaking, teaching, at conferences and retreats. She is a prolific author, editor, and co-host of EWTN's Household of Faith and Now We're Catholic. Please welcome our speaker,
2: Rosalind Moss. You know, sometimes people say, what's a nice Jewish girl doing like you in a place like this? But the fact is, the church is Jewish. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, all the apostles, 3,000, the first Christians were Jewish. So the question is not what a nice Jewish girl is doing in a place like this, the question is what are you doing in a nice Jewish place like this? I know what you're doing here. Some people have asked me, I wear a cross with the Star of David, And people have asked me about that. And I could write a book of what happens as I go through life with this. It was a gift. It's very special to me. And uh, a couple months ago, uh, I was at a supermarket, not looking where I was going with my basket. And the fellow that crashed into me wasn't looking where he was going. We crashed into each other. We both looked up. Now, if, if you look at me, you're not sure I'm Jewish, but you look at him and you knew. You knew. And he looked at me and he saw this and he said, don't you have a couple of conflicting things going on? So I said to him what I say to every Jewish person who asks me before they could say something else. I say, well, you see, the thing is that I'm Jewish and I'm Catholic because I believe that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, God, in fact, came to earth, died for our sins, rose from the dead to give us life. He established a church. It's the Catholic Church, and I'm in it. And so the most Jewish thing a person could do is to be Catholic. Now, who are you? (laughs) And then they could speak. Oh, this is so wonderful. So wonderful here today. And you know this tent, uh, Donna and the ladies I was with last night told me, Roz, We got a tent, and I, but this is a very, very Jewish tent. I love tents. (laughs) Forty years in the wilderness, we were in tents. And you know what they say, Abraham, everywhere Abraham traveled, he pitched his tent and built an altar. Every time he stopped, he set up a tent to stay in overnight protection, and he built an altar. And every time he left, he packed up the tent The tent moved with him, but the altar stayed. The tent told people that Abraham was not a citizen of earth, just a pilgrim. The altar told everyone that he was a citizen of heaven. But who knew growing up in my Jewish years that this would be the most Jewish place on earth and the fulfillment of all God has promised to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, who knew? My mother Jewish, my father, my grandparents, everybody Jewish. And we were conservative Jews growing up, and we followed all the traditions of Judaism. Shabbos candles, we went to shul on the high holy days, and in between, we said the prayers at home, we followed all the traditions. And every Passover, we sat down to the Passover table with our extended family, and we waited for the Messiah to come. We had a chair for Elijah, who would precede the Messiah. And then the Messiah would come, we're not sure how far behind. And we were two, three dozen people, an extended family sitting down at that Passover table every year, had everything ready for the Passover Seder. We wouldn't eat for a couple of hours yet. Even as kids, we loved it, because we would recount the entire story of God's deliverance of our people from Egypt. And every year it was somebody's turn to go to the door. We had a chair for Elijah. We always kept the door of our apartment open for Elijah to come, and then the Messiah to follow him. And every year it was somebody's turn to go to that door. And when I was 11 years old, my brother David, two years older than me, was bar mitzvahed. And that year it was my turn to go to the door. And I remember my little 11-year-old legs shaking. I was so nervous. What if he was out there on the 12th floor of our apartment building in Brooklyn? What would I do if he was out there? I was shaking. And I went out there and I turned around to the table, because the hallway was empty, and I said, he hasn't come, Elijah's not here, the Messiah hasn't come. And we went on with the Passover Seder for a few hours. We knew that when Messiah came one year, he would gather the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth and put us in Jerusalem where we belong, you know and he would set up his kingdom, a literal physical kingdom, and he would rule and he would reign and there would be peace and life would make sense when Messiah came. And we waited every Passover for him. And I remember going to bed as that little 11-year-old child. We would leave the table because he didn't come that year when I was 11. And we would sing as we left the Passover Seder next year in Jerusalem because that's where we're gonna be when Messiah comes, you know, so he didn't come this year but he's gonna come, so he'll come next year. And so next year, we'll be in Jerusalem. And when I went to bed as that 11-year-old, I said to myself, is there really a Messiah? Is he really gonna come? We believed it, the only hope the world had. We got up into our teens. I have a younger sister, Susan, and my brother is David, and in his teens, David started searching to see if there was such a thing as truth in life. If you could really know that God exists, we never claimed he didn't exist, but how do you know that? Is it just by faith? Can you know God exists? Can you find truth? And David, in his teens, declared himself an atheist. Oy vey. An atheist, I said, David, I am, I figured in my teens, I am because of what is, because of what exists. If what is, if what exists means there's a God, therefore I am. If what is means there's no God, then therefore I am. And my knowledge or lack of it doesn't determine what is. So how is knowing going to make a difference? You believe. What if you know? Could knowing make a difference in your life? Well, David, when he came to the conclusion there was no God, he became an atheist. I said, David, do you know what you have to know to know there's no God? How could anybody know there's no God? He married in his early 20s. A gal that grew up in a nominal Protestant home, and she had declared herself an atheist. So they got married, and they figured when the kids grew up, they'd just choose their own religion. But then their oldest son was seven, and they were looking for answers for him. So they started. David started searching for truth again through all the books. His wife wasn't much of a reader. She would visit different churches. Now, they're upstate New York. She visits a Baptist church, and she gives her life to Jesus. I didn't know this was happening. David called me. He called me to tell me that until he came to his conclusion, their children would be raised to believe in Christ, when David came to his truth, he would deal with it then. Well, I love David more than anyone on the face of the earth. And there's nothing all our lives that he could do that I wouldn't support him in. And for the first time, I didn't understand my brother. I was in such shock, I said, how could you love your kids? and let him be raised to believe in a man. Prophet, teacher, whoever Christ is, we're Jews. And if there's a God, we have a direct connection. And I remember going out to visit them and they invited me to church and I wanted to go. David was allowing his children to hear this. I just couldn't even believe it. And I sat through that Baptist service, little church with 100 people. And the choir was singing what I didn't know then, but I know now, grace that is greater than all your sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. And I sat there thinking silently, grace that is greater than my sin? Nothing's greater than my sin. What is greater than my sin? And then I thought, what sin? sin's got nothing to do with me. I wasn't sure that God existed at that point. I wouldn't declare he didn't. Mankind is my equal. I was hit that day with a sin that was mine and with a love that was not. I knew that day for the first time in my life that there was not just an amount of love that existed in this world, but a kind of love that existed that was foreign to my life. And I broke down crying, and my sister-in-law started telling me about Jesus. She was smiling from ear to ear, and I said, get away from me with those words. I know what I'm feeling. Don't you tell me Christ is the reason for-. I wouldn't hear. A year later, I was preparing to move out to California, and I visited David and Janet again, and David never stopped searching, and I never started. And David came across an article that would change the course of our lives, and the article said this, that there was such a thing as Jewish people, alive on the face of the earth, who believed that Jesus Christ, a name that wasn't allowed in my house, I had never pronounced it in my life, that Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah the rest of us are waiting for. I was 32 years old, I had never heard such a thing in my entire life, and I said to my brother David, David, I don't care who believes what in this world, everybody could do their own thing, but Jewish people believe this. Jewish people believe that the only hope the world has The Messiah already came 2,000 years ago. I'm 32 years old. I never heard of such a thing in my life. He already was here on earth and nobody knows he came. He didn't make an impact. We're not back in Jerusalem. There's no peace and he left. That is insane. And David said, Roz, I didn't say it's true. That's what the article said. And at the time, the article said, we were upstate New York, the article said they were all out in California for some reason. (laughs) And they called themselves by all kinds of names, Hebrew Christians, Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus. And I thought to myself, you know, there's all kinds of troubled people in the world. Jews are just as entitled to be troubled as everybody else. You cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus, but you could be Jewish and have problems. I moved out to California. I was here a few months walking through Westwood near UCLA at an arts and crafts festival on a Sunday afternoon. And I saw off in the distance this young, to me, hippie looking fellow in his 20s. He had a beard, handing out flyers, and a t-shirt, said Jews for Jesus. I could not believe these people existed. <laughs> I went up to him. His name is Mitch, wife Zahava, both Jewish both believe that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, but not the Messiah only, but God come to earth. Forget it. If I thought they were troubled, now I knew they were troubled. A man can't be God. Every Jew knows that. Every Jew knows that you cannot look on God and live. You don't check that out. He gave me a little flyer. The little flyer said, if being born hasn't given you much satisfaction, try being born again. And it had a little happy face. And I tried not to show it, but that little flyer shot a knife through my heart. Brand new in California, I was hired by an advertising company to open up a San Francisco branch office for them. I had been in business 15 years. I earned a great salary. I had a great social life. I lacked nothing this world could give, nothing. I only had one problem, which even my best friend didn't know, which I remember having since I'm old enough to think in some measure. Uh, At least I could remember thinking this back till when I was 10 years old, that no matter how much I had, love, money, success, whatever the world could give, nothing and no one could ever tell me why mankind was on the earth, and nothing and no one ever filled the deep sense of emptiness, meaninglessness, purposelessness. I live with my entire life. And now a little is telling me I could be born again, go back, in my mother, it's OK, say mother, come out again. What? And they said to me, Roz, God exists and you could know that. <laughs> How do you know that? And then they said, not only can you know that God exists, you could know him personally. Yep. Yeah, who could take that language? I said, what are you talking about? You know God. You talk to him. He answers you. They insisted they did. They insisted that God created us for a relationship with himself and that we could know him. And I went home that night and I remember thinking, what if there's really a God? I thought there was, but what if you could know that? Could knowing that make a difference in your life, but what if you could know him personally, Twilight Zone? I followed these troubled Jews around For months, in case they were onto something. Just in case. (laughs) And for months, they told me that Christ died for my sins and their sins and the sins of the entire world. I speak English. I have no way to make sense out of that sentence. I took every word to a dictionary. I found out Christ is the English translation of Messiah. That blew me away a little bit. Died for, F-O-R, my, M-Y. I looked it up. Every word, foreign language. The night that changed my life forever. I was with 12 Jews for Jesus at a Hawaiian restaurant, 12 of them and me, 12 Evangelical Protestant Jews for Jesus and me. I didn't know what an Evangelical Protestant was. I don't even think I ever heard those words before. And they started in on me again, "Ros, Christ died for your sins and our sins and the sins of the entire world. And that night I said to them, would you please hold it right there? Hold it, right? You've been trying to tell me this for months. I have no way to understand that language. I know the words, it's foreign. I don't know what you're saying. And I said, for the sake of this discussion, let's see what you believe happened. Christ died for your sins, my sins, the sins of the world, whatever that language means. My question is, what for? Why did he do it? What was in his mind when he did that? What would be in a man's mind to go to a cross? What? And when I asked that question, those 12 Jewish believers took me through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which I never knew through all my years in synagogue. And what they told me in two and a half hours, I'm going to tell you in two and a half minutes. I've got it down pat, don't worry. (laughs) They said, Roz, this, God is, he exists. I knew that. He's holy. I knew that. We're sinful, I knew that, but I knew nothing else. They told me that night. They said, Roz, we come into the world separated from God, original sin. You know, Judaism teaches that. I knew that, but I had no idea of the consequence that it meant for our lives, that we would be separated from him perhaps for all eternity. He's, they said, we come into the world separated from God through original sin. And if we leave the world that way, we'll be separated from him for all eternity, because the wages of sin is death. Now, that's a Bible verse. But those sneaky people didn't tell me that, because they were throwing Bible verses at me left and right. And they knew I didn't think the New Testament was a kosher book. And those verses went right through me. The wages of sin is death. What's a wage? A wage is a salary. A wage is what you earn. You deserve it. You've worked for it. It's coming for you, to you. So they were saying, the wages of sin is death. If God gave us what we've earned, we'd be dead. And they explained death to me. They had explained everything to me. Death is separation from life, so they said, if you stick a pin in a corpse, there's no response. Death is an inability to respond to life. So they said, "Ros, stick a spiritual pin in you. There's no response because the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. You're dead, Roz. You're separated from God. And the wages of sin is death. If God were fair, we would be separated from him for all eternity. And they showed me in the Old Testament how with the sh- without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness or remission of sin, blood had to be shed. I never knew blood had to be shed. We had a dried lamb shank on our Passover table. We didn't kill a lamb. There's no sacrificial system or temple. He is a holy and just God, they said, who must punish sin. But then they said to me, he's also a loving God who created us for a relationship with himself. And that night they told me how God in his love, without compromising his holiness, provided the way for us to come back in relationship with him. And they took me from the exodus. You know the story of the children of Israel, God parting the sea, Moses led them through and put them at the foot of Mount Sinai. And remember they had taken a lamb, a male, a year old lamb. When the angel of death flew over Egypt, all the houses in Egypt all the firstborn would be killed except the houses of the Israelites that had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and on the lentils, the crossbar, because the lamb took the place, died in the place of the firstborn. Okay, so now, God took them through the sea, put them at the foot of Mount Sinai, and had Moses and Aaron set up an altar. And the individuals would bring bulls, goats, lambs, whatever the sacrifice for sin required to the altar. And if it was a lamb, such as the Passover lamb was. It would be a male, a year old, without blemish, without spot. In other words, a holy, perfect offering for a holy God, not the one they didn't want. And the individual would come to the altar before the priest with that little spotless lamb. And they'd put their hand on the head of the lamb. And it was a way for them to identify with that little four-legged creature. And it was symbolic of the sin passing from this individual onto that little lamb. And that little lamb who was innocent but who symbolically had taken upon itself the sin of this person was slain and the blood of that lamb was shed on the altar as an offering to God in payment for this person's sin. I listened to that and I said, why? Why would God do that? Why would God put an innocent animal to death for my sin? Put me to death. It made no sense to me. But it began to get through to me that sin is no light issue to God, that he would do that. And they explained to me with that that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs through 1,500 years of that mosaic sacrificial system could never take away sin. They were a kippur, you know, the highest holy day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur. In Hebrew, Yom is day, Kippur is covering the Day of Atonement, when God covered the sins of Israel, but they couldn't take them away. And they said to me, not only could all those animals not take away sin, but they had no power to change the heart, to perfect the worshiper. So the individual would go home and sin over and over and over again, and come and offer sacrifices over and over again. And they said to me, not the blood of one lamb, or all of those lambs, millions and millions and millions of lambs through 1,500 years could not take away sin. But every lamb and all those lambs, every one and all of them together through 1,500 years were a sign, they said to me, To point to the one who would one day come and take upon himself, not the sin of a single individual temporarily for a time, but the sin of every one man, woman, and child who ever lived for all time. And then they went to one verse in the New Testament with me, a verse I've never heard in my entire life, and a verse many of you know in your sleep. When Jesus came, John the Baptist looked at him in the Jordan and said, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And sitting there with those 12 Jewish believers at that Hawaiian restaurant, my life was shattered on the spot. I started shaking, I couldn't speak, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't believe what I had even begun to hear. I thought to myself, if one little lamb under the Old Testament sacrificial system could take upon itself the sin of a single individual temporarily for a time? Here's a crucifix. What then could the blood of God's Son do, who He, the Lamb, and our sins, the sins of the entire world, transferred to Him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? It was like Someone opened the curtain and exposed the stage for me, and I knew it happened. I knew it was true. My hang-up all this time is that a man can't be God. A man can't be God. And I realized that night, a man cannot be God. But if God exists, if God is, God could become a man. God could do anything he wants to do. I'm not going to tell him how to be God. I knew it was true. I was shattered and even so it took me a few months to work through fear and pride and whatever baggage I carried and give my life to that incomparable lamb. I did that 31 years ago. In 1976, I remember the night I gave my life to Jesus, asking him to take my life. For me, it was all or nothing at all, like jumping off a cliff. Either, either he was God, and it would be okay. I don't know how he does that. Or it, he wasn't, and I don't know how I would deal with that. But I didn't have an experience that I felt. I asked him to take my life. And I went home, and I figured I didn't feel anything. I won't worry. I, I meant it, and I'll, I'll, I won't rush him. It's okay. And I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning, and I opened my eyes, lying in bed, and for the first time in my life, I said, good morning, Lord, and I knew he was God, and I knew I'd never be alone again, and the pain and the emptiness of my heart was absolutely gone. And I got dressed Monday morning, went out and went to work and looked at the hills and the trees and the skies. The world was new and I was a new creation in it. And I said, of course, who else made all this? I showed God around Los Angeles because I figured before he came to live within me, he wasn't here. This is Wilshire Boulevard. This is my kitchen. This is my bedroom. Two weeks later, I had an ice cream cone. I said, Lord, it's our first ice cream cone together. The world was completely new. And I jumped in, I wanted a ladder to the moon to tell the world of such a savior. And I jumped into that evangelical church. My brother David was still searching and I called him to tell him, I waited a few weeks, I wanted to make sure it took. And I called David and I told him and he said, you sound like an evangelical. I said, what's that? He said, actually, you sound like a fundamentalist, Ross. I said, what's that? I never heard of those things. I only knew that I was a Christian. And when I started looking into the Catholic Church after trying to save Catholics for 18 years, I was embarrassed that I hadn't looked into denominations and done my homework. But once I realized that God didn't establish 30,000 plus denominations, but a church, I didn't feel so bad. I shouldn't have known to look. I met Jesus. I was a Christian. But I found out I was an evangelical and pretty much fundamentalist. And my first Bible study was taught by an ex-Catholic who was taught by an ex-priest. That's another Roy Vey. And they taught me straight off that the Catholic Church was a cult, a false religious system leading millions astray. I believed them, they supported it from their end. And for the next 14 of my 18 evangelical years, I tried to save all of you. From what I believe with all my heart was a false religious system and it was in the summer of 1990. Oh, how shall I tell you this? A year later, my brother David, through the Baptist church his wife had been attending, gave his life to Christ, and he called me, and for five hours we rejoiced on the phone. And we were very happy, and, but he said to me, you know, Roz, something's wrong. He said, he had read the high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one, and he said, how? Could such so many good and godly men, and thousands of Protestant pastors he's speaking about now, who love God, who study the word of God with humility and sincerity and all the tools of biblical inter- biblical interpretation, how could so many good and godly men come out with such different interpretations of scripture? In so many crucial areas, David said, God is not the author of confusion. If he left us his word, his written word, wouldn't he have left us away to know what he meant and what, by what he said? And I would say to him, David, just read the Bible. Just be a Christian, don't worry. We see through a glass dimly now. One day we'll know as we're known. But you know that's not enough for David. you know why? Because he thinks. He said, what human parent would give birth to a child and leave them orphans to fend for themselves. For the child should figure out who should feed it, what, who should teach it, what. He said, "No. God is a much more perfect father than any human father. Would he adopt us into his family, make us his children, and leave us orphans to fend for ourselves?" So David said, "I want to find out if what Jesus meant, what he said, that he established a church, and if it still exists after two thousand years, and if you could find it." David met pro-life people, and he started in with the pro-life cause, and he met Catholics who knew their faith. That was phenomenon number one. Soon, David was studying with a monk, a Franciscan monk from Brooklyn. Forget that. I flew out from California to rescue David from the monk. Because I knew that the monk was an agent of Satan to lead my brother astray. And David and the monk and I went back and forth for three hours on all the Reformation issues and it was Christmas Eve 1978. And I had been a Christian two years and David was a Christian one year. And he was now looking into the Catholic Church and being very drawn to it. And it was Christmas Eve 1978 and David said to me, Roz, I'm going to midnight mass, do you want to come? Well, I had never been in a Catholic church in my life. I wanted to go to see what David's problem was. So we went, and we went, it was upstate New York, the most incredibly gorgeous scene, a tiny little church upstate New York, stained glass windows all lit up inside, the light through the windows, fluffy snowflakes coming down like a little picture postcard. It was so gorgeous, I got so angry. I said, it's just like Satan to make error look enticing. It's awful. We sat through the mass and we got out. We walked down the stairs and David said to me, "Ross, what'd you think? He was all excited. I said, I couldn't speak for an entire half hour. I was in such shock, I couldn't speak. When we got home a half hour later, he said, say anything, just speak. And when I could, I said to him, David, that is a synagogue, David, but with Christ. And he got all excited, he said, that's right, Roz, that's what the Catholic Church is. I said, no, that's wrong. What was his problem? From our Jewish background, a ha- his hang up, from the liturgy, the aesthetics, doesn't he understand? Christ is the end to which all that pointed. Made me ill. A year later, my brother was Catholic, and my Christian friends would say, is your brother a Christian, Roz? I'd say, I thought he was, but he's Catholic now, so I don't know. <laughs> and so we try to save each other for years, and it was in the summer of 1990 that I was visiting David in New York from California, and he gave me a magazine called This Rock Magazine, published by Catholic Answers. He said, Ross, it's a Catholic apologetics magazine. Thought you'd be interested. I said, Catholic apologetics? Now you know what apologetics is. Doesn't mean we walk around saying I'm sorry for being Catholic. <laughs> Peter said, St. Peter, you know who that is? It's our first pope, our first Jewish pope. Don't you forget that. Peter says, Sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the hope that's within you. Defense, apologia, apologist. To give a, not to be defensive, but a reasoned explanation. So, as Catholics, we don't know, we just don't know what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. We can give a reasoned explanation. So, David gave me the magazine. He said, Ross, it's a Catholic apologetics magazine. Thought you might be interested. I said, Catholic apologetics? Catholics have a defense of their faith. Catholics know why they believe what they believe. I had never met a Catholic who knew their faith. My pastor was an ex-Catholic. Half my congregation were ex-Catholics. But you know, there was something more. I didn't know Catholics cared that anyone know it. And I thought to myself, if you even think you have the truth, and the truth is the answer for your soul, and the answer for every soul on the face of the earth, how do you keep it to yourself? So I had my first measure of respect for any Catholic who would publish what they believe is the answer of the world's salvation, even though I knew they were wrong. And I took the magazine home, and I got a subscription. In that magazine was a full-page advertisement which read, Presbyterian minister becomes Catholic. And I thought to myself, I never heard of such a thing in my entire life. It's a troublemaker by the name of Scott Hahn. Some of you know who he is. And I, but I had never heard of Scott Hahn. I had never heard of such a thing. And I said, I don't care what, who he was. I don't care what his title was. I don't care what he functioned as. He could not have had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and then become Catholic. Well his theology, his background was so close to mine, very Calvinistic, all that, I listened to four hours of Scott's tape in an album. And at the end of those four hours, he said, for the one who will look into the claims of the Catholic Church, 2,000 years of church history, the church fathers and such, he said to that one will come a holy shock, a holy shock, and a glorious amazement to know, to find out that what he had been fighting... And trying to save people from was in fact the church Christ established on earth 2,000 years ago. Holy shock are the only words to describe what went through me physically on the spot. The impact of that split second in time was such that I knew if I didn't look into the claims of the Catholic Church I'd be turning from God. It's the second time in my life I stood paralyzed. First, was with those 12 troubled Jews for Jesus. The moment it got through to me that God, the unapproachable God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom no man can look on and live, that that God entered history, entered time, took on flesh for us. This was the second I stood there paralyzed. I said, oh no, don't tell me there's any truth to this thing. That began. Four and a half years of the most agonizing journey of my life, I went to a Christian bookstore I know, and I said, I want everything you've got about the Catholic Church, which translates against the Catholic Church. And I walked out with $200 worth of books and tapes and everything, because I needed these Protestant pastors to rescue me from becoming Catholic. And I took them to New York, and I got a waitress job. It was in an Italian restaurant, so they were all Catholic. (laughs) And I poured through those books, I was utterly and desperately alone, because I had already read too much, and those Protestant pastors were not fighting the Catholic Church, they were fighting a straw man. It is the statement of Bishop Fulton Sheen which I learned from Scott Hahn. Bishop Sheen said, there's not a hundred people in America who hate the Catholic Church, but there are millions who hate what they mistakenly think the Catholic Church teaches. That was me, and those were those who taught me. And I put away the Protestant material and started reading solid, good Catholic books, which my fanatic brother was happy to give me and began to discover a church more whole, more magnificent, more beautiful than anything I could ever have imagined was God's design for church, for his church, this side of heaven. I looked into every single thing that separates Protestants, non-Catholic Christians, from Catholics. There were two things at the end. My two biggest problems And I'm gonna tell you about them because they made me Catholic and they keep me Catholic. People say, was Mary your problem? She wasn't my problem. No, no, Mary wasn't my problem. I couldn't believe anything until I could believe everything. But I had already read enough and I put her on the shelf. In fact, I saw an advertisement. It said, if you only read one book on Mary, read this book. So I got it. I figured if the church isn't true, I don't have to read it. If the church is true, I just have to read one book. The title of the book is True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. Oy vey, how do you call a creature my life, my sweetness, and my hope? A creature, language fitting, even a blessed creature, language fitting for God alone. Oh, but then I read his chapter on his love for the Lord Jesus, and I thought to myself, I should one day have such love for the Lord Jesus as St. Louis de Montfort has. How could you have such love for Jesus and such devotion at the same time for a creature, even the Blessed Mother, would not devotion to her rob us of devotion to Jesus. Of course, I found out much differently now. And now, whoever asks me about Mary, especially my Jewish friends, I say, don't be afraid. You go to Mary. She'll say, do I have a son for you? <laughs> right? He's a Jewish mother. You'll never meet a Jewish mother doesn't want you should know her son. But here were my two problems. The sacramental nature of the church and the nature of the mass, no small things, sacramental nature of the church. Why would God use things as a means to give us his grace? Why would he use his very creation? Why baptize through water? Why? What does water do? It gets you wet. Water has no power to do anything. And so we would say under this Calvinistic thing, everything is utterly corrupt, totally cor- Why would God use corrupt stuff as a means to give us his grace? Grace is the very life of God in our souls. And then I began to think, well, why did Jesus change water to wine at the wedding feast of Cana? He didn't have to use water. If they were out of wine, he could have said, poof, wine. He spoke. And the worlds came into being. He creates by his very word. Why did he use water? Why did he pick up mud and spit to heal a blind man? He didn't always heal blind men that way. Why did he do that? Why the Incarnation? Why did he take on our flesh? And I began to understand that everything is fallen, not utterly corrupt, but yes, fallen from grace. But that through the cross, God has taken us and his creation to reconcile all things to himself and restore us and his creation to the dignity, the beauty, the purpose for which he made all things. Things are neutral. God said all he made is good. Things aren't bad. It's our use of them that distorts them. God uses his creation as a means of his grace. What is a sacrament? Come on, you Baltimore catechism Catholics. An outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. An outward sign. What is water is a sign of cleansing. You wash yourself with it. So God uses the outward sign. As a Protestant, I believed it was merely a sign. As a Catholic, I learned that Catholics believe it is a sign, but God does what the sign shows. So the sign shows cleansing, and through the water, he cleanses us. So all the sacraments give grace. But the Eucharist is another matter. The Eucharist doesn't merely give grace, doesn't merely give the life of Christ. The Eucharist, according to Catholics that I read, is Christ himself. So one day, I finally went to a priest. I wasn't going to trust a priest, but finally I went to a very beautiful priest upstate New York, and I said to Father James O'Connor, I said, we evangelicals, we have Christ, you know. He's the indwelling Christ. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I said, do you Catholics get Christ on Sunday in the Eucharist, then do you lose him during the week, and you come back the next Sunday and you get him again? How do you get him if you have him? Does God come in parts? And Father O'Connor said to me, No, Roz, we Catholics have Christ. He is the indwelling Christ. We have the indwelling Trinity. And yes, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But he said, as in a marriage relationship, a husband and wife have each other. They love each other all the time. Sometimes they go about their mundane chores in life, and they're not so aware of that love. He said, but in the intimacy of the marital union, it is the beloved giving to his beloved, the bridegroom giving to his bride himself in a total act of intimacy, of self-giving love that is unique to that time. He said, that's the Eucharist. We have Christ. We have a relationship with him all the time. Sometimes we go about our mundane chores in life. We're not always so aware of that relationship. He said, but in the Eucharist, it is the beloved giving to his beloved, the bridegroom Christ giving to his bride, the church himself, in a total act of intimacy, of self-giving love that is unique to that time. I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever heard anything more beautiful in my life. So I said to Father O'Connor, okay, then one more thing. Well, I had been taught by my Protestant, well-meaning, beloved pastor, for whom I will be eternally grateful. They brought me to God, they taught me to love truth, they taught me to love his word, it led me all the way home. I will be eternally grateful for them. But he would stand up in the pulpit and hold up his Bible, which is a little thinner than this, by about seven books, and he would say, don't those Catholics know? His misunderstanding was, that the Mass is the re-sacrifice of Christ. Those Catholics are re-sacrificing Christ at every Mass. Don't they know the book of Hebrews says he was sacrificed once for all? Well, I came to find out that Catholics know that. They've always taught it. They've never taught different. They always will taught it, and they wrote the book. I came to find that out, right? So the Mass is not the re-sacrifice of Christ, but the re-presentation of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that happened in time. Christ was sacrificed 2,000 years ago in time on Calvary. Once-for-all, but it's an eternal sacrifice. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It also exists out of time. And it is that once-for-all sacrifice at the Mass, brought through time, down on every altar of every Catholic Church, and will be till the end of time, not re sacrificed, represented, made present. I already had come to understand that. However, I would sit in the back pew and I would listen as the priest invited the parishioners to join their sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ through him, with him and in him, to the Father. And I would sit in that back pew, and in my heart, I would scream inside, wait a minute, what are you saying? We join our sacrifices with the sacrifice of Christ. Don't you Catholics believe that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient once for all? For the sins of everyone who ever lived, past, present, and future, man, woman, and child, all sins of the entire world forever. Don't you believe that? If I join my sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ, I reasoned, I'm adding to the sacrifice of Christ. And if I'm adding to the sacrifice of Christ, aren't I saying, Lord Jesus, thanks a lot for dying for me, but you didn't finish the job? I need to add to it. If the Catholic Church believes that the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient for the sins of all mankind, men, women, and children for all time. Goodbye, Catholic Church. And for a solid year, I asked every Catholic I met, do you add to the sacrifice of Christ? And every Catholic said to me, no, we don't. They wanted me to understand that the Catholic Church teaches that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for the sins of all mankind for all time. It's not the language of the Mass I heard. Finally, I said to Father O'Connor, do you add to the sacrifice of Christ? And he looked at me, those calm priests, and he said, yes, we do. And then he said, yes, his sacrifice was sufficient. No, he doesn't need it, but yes, we add to it. My first response, thank you very much. The truth is out. I've been rescued from ever becoming Catholic. I really appreciate that. That was my first response. My second response came after sitting before that holy priest, I don't know how long, 10 seconds, five minutes, I don't know. But what he had just said became to me, after that initial response, became to me the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard outside of learning of the death and resurrection of Christ for me. Years before, I had taken a course on the life of Christ and I was up to the point where Mary washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And the professor said to us, our ability to love is in part measured by our ability to receive. Because when we love, we're giving, we're in control. It's a little easier to receive. Could be awkward, could be humbling, a little uncomfortable at times. He said, but Jesus received from her as freely as he gave. And I remember taking that class thinking, I don't love like that. I didn't love like that then. I don't love like that now. And I thought to myself, I put Jesus on the cross, I did. He died for my sins. And would he now receive me into the very sacrifice that I caused? And I thought of a mother in the kitchen baking a chocolate cake. I thought she's got all the ingredients, she's sufficient for the task, she needs nothing and she needs no one. But into the kitchen comes her three-year-old daughter. Mommy, can I help you? What does love do? love receives huh yes sweetheart yes honey come so the little one comes and throws in an egg flour, stuff did the mother need her help no was the mother sufficient for the task yes was it a true addition it was i thought to myself this i put him to death my sins did but now that by his grace he's brought me to love him if i could go back two thousand years ago and be at the foot of Calvary as our blessed mother was. Whereas in effect, I yelled crucify him with that crowd, but now that by his grace, he's brought me to love him. If I could be at Calvary and now that I love him, crawl up on the cross with him and give myself to him who was giving himself for me, would I not wanna do that? I thought I think I would and then I realized that's the mass and it blew me away. That we who in effect yelled crucify him, he died for our sins. He died for the sins of the world. Who killed Jesus? The Jews, yes. The Romans, yes. They were the historical people at the time. It's sin that killed the savior. He died for the sins of the world. So we in effect who yelled crucify him, but now that by his grace he's brought us to love him, we don't go back 2,000 years to Calvary. 2,000 years is brought down on the altar. And whereas in effect we yelled crucify him, but now that by his grace he's brought us to love him, we can crawl up on the altar of Calvary made present and give ourselves with him, through him, with him, and in him to the Father. I thought, what manner of love is that? It's beyond all that's human. We couldn't have invented it. It absolutely consumed me, and still does. I told you I was working for an Italian restaurant, so I went back, all Catholics. I told them I became Catholic. This is the greeting. Oh, Roz, I used to be Catholic. Oh, those words stab a million times. Now I'm with Faith Bible Church. You had such freedom, she said to me. You had such freedom as an evangelical. Why would you submit yourself to that archaic, patriarchal church run by old men in Rome, giving you all those do's and don'ts? I had one question for her. I've had the same question for every Catholic who's left. When you were Catholic, did you know, did you believe that the Eucharist was Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity? What does that mean? 100% man and 100% God, just as he's God, he could be 200%, just as he was when he walked on the earth, the God who created you, the God who held the world together from the manger because he never ceased being God. Did you believe it was him? She said, I never really knew that. I said, this is another matter. Bible study, fellowship, all of that is good and it should be in its right context, yes but they are all to the end that we have him. We have him in the Eucharist, in the tabernacle, who waits for us. Should we leave him for those things? To the woman at the well, Jesus said, if you knew the one who said, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So I say to the one who doubts, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, take, eat, this is my body, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living bread. You know what we can do? Every single mass, we could go from the mass, which is the Passover fulfilled in the Passover lamb who is Christ. We can go from every mass having received that lamb and we can leave every mass singing next year in Jerusalem Where we who eat the body and drink the blood of that lamb will live in the presence of that lamb for all eternity. So let me say as we end our time. If you're Catholic, you have a treasure and a gift you need to unpack and find out that you are the king's kid and the riches that we have in his church. If you're seeking, don't ever stop seeking. Don't be afraid. As long as you're seeking God you never need to be afraid if you're not a Christian even if you're Jewish don't be afraid seek the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob ask him to help you not be afraid he'll lead you all the way the women when I work with them at the jail had nowhere to go so I would sing to them and they would have to put up with it he loves you just the way you are today but much too much to let you stay that way and when he's changed your life from what it was before he still won't love you one bit more god bless you and i'll see you in heaven do you hear
1: We hope you've enjoyed the program today, and for more information or a copy of the broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, it's Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. We know that some of you prefer calling. So please do so toll-free at 800-500-4556. In addition, if you would like to know more about the Magnificat ministry, including the location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, please call us at 504-828-MARY. Or you can visit the Magnificat website at www.magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Until next time, may the peace of Christ reign in your hearts.